Before They Were Beatles, episode 10, Three Cool Cats. This is the story of how one of the thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity, and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence, and at times, just sheer luck. It's a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George, and Ringo, before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, January 1959. It was time for Brian Epstein to make another career move. The NEMS store at Charlotte Street had proved to be such a success that the family decided to open another branch closer to Liverpool city centre at 12 to 14 Little Chapel. Brian was asked to move across and manage this new flagship store. Using his theatrical contacts, he arranged for popular actor and singer Anthony Newley to open the store. Brian was highly impressed by the smartly dressed star and especially the way that he handled himself around the press and his fans. Newley's behaviour would later become the model that Brian Epstein used for the way that my artists should behave. Early in January, possibly around the 7th, George's father Harry Harrison arranged for his son's band to play at a dance being held at a social club of the Merseyside Passenger Transport Executive, the local bus operators. Mr Harrison was the chairman of the social club, so arranging for his son's band to play wasn't too difficult. Perhaps a greater achievement was that he persuaded the manager of the local pavilion cinema to drop by and watch the quarrymen. The cinema manager was hoping to attract more teenagers to his movie house by having a local skiffle band play in the interval between the movies. The dance was to be held at the Finch Lane bus depot, and the evening started well with the group, albeit a bit rusty, performing their standard set without mishap. But over the break, word was leaked to the boys that there was free drinks available for the talent. The offer was too good to resist, especially for John, who had taken to drinking even more following his mother's death. The quarryman's second set was a complete shambles. The disgusted cinema manager sought out the group afterwards and openly criticised their performance and suggested that to get anywhere they would have to drastically improve their behaviour and attitude. John's reaction was to tell the manager to piss off. The disgusted manager immediately withdrew his offer of a regular gig and stalked off. In the end, he offered the regular cinema spot to the Darktown Skiffle Group, whose lineup now included Richard Starkey on drums. As the owner of one of the few full drum sets in Liverpool, Richie was in demand by nearly every skiffle group who needed a rhythm section. The Eddie Clayton group that he'd originally joined had started to drift apart, and co-founder Eddie Mills was otherwise distracted by his impending marriage. Richie would now non-committally sit in with any skiffle group that needed his services, even playing for three different outfits in one evening. 
Meanwhile, the quarryman drummer Colin Hatton was also disgusted by the rest of the group's behaviour. His complaints grew louder as they travelled home, and it wasn't long before they were all involved in a full-scale argument on the bus. At the height of the argument, Colin stormed off the bus a stop earlier than he needed, taking his gear with him. The quarrymen were now reduced to John Lennon, Paul McCartney and George Harrison. It was as a trio for the first time that they honoured an existing promise to play a gig at Walton Village Hall on the 24th, but without the supporting sound produced by drums and bass, they realised that the group was going nowhere. The lack of a bass guitar was becoming a significant factor in stalling the progress of the Quarrymen away from being thought of as an amateur skiffle band towards being a rock and roll group. A few months earlier, Lou Walters, the bass player with Alan Caldwell's group, had bought one of the new electric bass guitars on credit, and soon every rising group in Liverpool was exchanging their TTS basses for an electric version. Everyone except the Quarrymen. John tried to persuade George to switch, but to no avail. His next tactic was to offer a place in the group to George's friend Arthur Kelly on the proviso that he could find the £60 needed for a bass. This tactic didn't work either, so they were stuck as a group of three lead guitars. Paul recalls that, quote, We'd show up for gigs, just the three of us with guitars, and the person who booked us was ask, Where's the drums then? And to cover this we'd tell him, Well, the rhythm's in the guitars. But this excuse didn't work for long. With no rhythm or percussion, no regular gigs, and no manager, it was apparent that after playing just 25 official gigs, for all effective purposes, the quarrymen were no more. Part 2. February 1959. Although probably at the lowest point of their career, three principals kept playing together with lunchtime jam sessions at the art college. Paul and John kept working on new ideas and new songs, while George, keen to keep performing and playing, was soon freelancing as he later termed this period. George's first attempt to find experience outside the Quarrymen was an audition for Alan Caldwell's new group, the Ray Vin Texans. And while impressed by George's ability and his rendition of Gene Vincent's Wedding Bells, they thought him too young and turned him down. Soon after failing the audition, George was invited to join a new group called the Les Stewart Quartet. Given the apparent lack of future for the Quarrymen, George was eager to gain more stage experience and play with a few other guys. He was also anxious to be in a band as opposed to having a job. This and the prospect of a regular gig at the re- as the resident band at the Lowlands Club in Hyman's Green, West Derby, meant George was soon on board. The Les Stewart Quartet now comprised of Stewart on vocals, George Harrison and Ken Brown on guitar, along with Jeff Skinner on drums. And they became the regular Saturday night attraction at the Lowlands for the next seven months. George had plenty of opportunities to split his time between the quartet rehearsals and lunchtime jam sessions with John and Paul, since he'd stopped attending school. He was fast approaching his 16th birthday, but until then he was legally obliged to attend school. However, legality was something that didn't concern him much. Due to his preoccupation with playing, George had sunk to the bottom of his class at the Liverpool Institute and failed all his subjects except art. To avoid problems at home, he burnt his report card, and he still left home in school uniform but never turned up for classes. Instead, he spent his lunch weekend matinees at the local cinema and his spare time rehearsing with his guitar. Not long after George joined his new band, he and his friends were shocked to learn of the death of one of their heroes in a plane crash the day the music died. 
February 3, 1959, proved to be a pivotal event in the life of Paul McCartney, for Buddy Holly's death inspired him to immediately compose I'll Follow the Sun, and in the years to follow, Paul became a leading champion of Buddy's legacy. I well remember writing this next song in the front parlour of our little council house in Liverpool, looking through the lace curtains onto the road, 24th Monroe. March 1959. On the 25th of March, Richard Starkey played his first gig as part of Al Caldwell's Raven Texans. It wasn't a full-time position, just the first in a series of standing gigs, as Richie still split his time with the Darktown Skiffle Group, who were in the process of changing their image and name to the more rock and roll friendly The Cadillacs. He had met Alan Caldwell earlier in the year at a talent search for the 6-5 special TV show held at the Liverpool Empire, and was told his group needed a drummer. Caldwell was fond of bestowing nicknames on most of his associates, and due to the number of rings that Richie Starkey wore, the other members soon began to call him Ringo. The Raving Texans lineup was now settled at Alan Caldwell on vocals, Johnny Guitar on guitar, Ty Brown on guitar, Lou Walters on bass and vocals, and Ringo on drums. Part 4, April 1959. Now legally allowed to leave school, George applied for his first real job as a window dresser at Blacker's department store in Liverpool, close to the new NEMS music store. The only vacancy the store personnel thought that the young Mr. Harrison was suitable for was that of an apprentice electrician, where the scruffy teddy boy would spend his time in the basement rather than in full view of the patrons. As it turned out, George's rudimentary of electronics would be useful to the group before too long. Part 5, June 1959. Just down the road from the Lowlands Club where George played every Saturday stood a large Victorian house at 8 Hyman's Green, owned by the Best family, who had two teenage sons, Peter and Rory. Both boys had lots of friends who were interested in rock and roll, and their mother Mona suggested converting the seven-room cellar under the house into a meeting place for her son's friends, and it wasn't long before the idea progressed into plans for a proper club with a live band at the weekends. As it happened, George's girlfriend, Ruth Morrison, was a family friend of the Best's, and on hearing that this new club would need a band, she suggested the group her boyfriend played with, the Les Stewart Quartet. As Mona Best already knew Ken Brown, she was easily convinced, and they were penciled in for the opening night scheduled in August. Ken Brown recalled, quote, At that time, George Harrison and I were playing with the Les Stewart Quartet. The most we ever got was £2 for playing a wedding reception. Working men's clubs never paid us more than 10 bob, i.e. 10 shillings, or half a pound. It was George's girlfriend, Ruth Morrison, who told us that Mrs. Best was opening the coffee bar. I went round to see Mrs. Best and we helped get the club ready. In return, Mrs. Best said we could play at the Cas Bar when it finally opened. Ken Brown was soon heavily involved in planning and decorating the club that had now been christened the Cas Bar. In fact, he became so involved that he started to miss rehearsals, which upset Les Stewart. The design of the Casbah, which got its name from a line in Mona Best's favourite movie, Algiers, was to be a small, intimate club with tables, fireplace, espresso machines and a bar which sold coffee, soda, hot dog and crisps. 
A jukebox was installed, but no decision had yet been made as to where the live bands would perform. And as a final touch, Mona painted a dragon on the ceiling. Part 6, August 1959. In mid-August, about two weeks before the opening of the Casbah, the ongoing argument between Les Stewart and Ken Brown over Ken's preoccupation with the club came to a head. Quote, Les and I got into an argument and Les said he wouldn't appear at the club, so George and I walked out. And I asked him if he knew who could help. He said he had two mates and went off on a bus to fetch them. He returned in a couple of hours with Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Ken Brown has placed the argument on Casbah opening night, however Pete Best wrote that it happened two weeks previously. For other incidents to fall into some sort of logical order, Best's recollection is probably the most accurate. Pete Best recalls that, quote, Ken came to Hyman's Green with George in tow and told us they would make a foursome with a couple of friends. A few days later, the four musicians who had resurrected the name The Quarryman for their group arrived at the Casbah for a tour of inspection. After five minutes gazing around the pre-opening chaos, John made his plans, recalled Pete Best. A middle room larger than the rest except for the coffee bar itself housed the jukebox. We'll play here, John decided, and that's the position that every band played from that day on. Mona Best, however, was not impressed by John's prima donna attitude and soon pressed the art college student into service as she handed him a paintbrush. In hindsight, this was probably not the best idea as the chronically short-sighted John was still averse to wearing his glasses in public. John, unable to read the labels on the paint, applied a coat of gloss paint to the walls that left them still tacky by opening night. The Casbah officially opened on Saturday the 29th of August. Membership was two shillings and sixpence a year or one shilling at the door. The doors opened at 7.30pm with the house band due on the stage at 8. The house band was paid a rate of £3 a night, 15 shillings each. The lineup for the new incarnation of the Quarrymen was John and George on lead, Paul and Ken on rhythm guitar. With all amplification provided through Ken's cheap 10 watt amplifier wired together by apprentice electrician George Harrison. They performed rent party style, all sat in a row except for the person singing who would stand for their particular spot. Ken Brown recalls, among the songs we performed on opening night were Long Tall Sally, one of Paul's favourite pieces, and Three Cool Cats, which John sang rolling his eyes, and this made one chap laugh and John stopped playing and said, belt up lad, to him. John never took any nonsense from anybody in those days. Among the capacity crowd of 300 that opening night were the member of Alan Caldwell's band, including their new permanent drummer, Ringo Starkey. Caldwell had rechristened himself Rory Storm, and his band now went under the name The Hurricanes. Also in the crowd was Best's latest lodger, an accountancy student by the name of Neil Aspinall, who had been in the same art and English classes as Paul McCartney at the Liverpool Institute. Neil Aspinall was destined to have a long association with the Beatles. The local West Derby paper reported on the opening of the Casbah, and while they concentrated on local boy Ken Brown and his efforts to help get the club ready, the article can arguably be counted as the first press notice for the embryonic Beatles. To quote the paper, Kenneth Brown is also a member of a guitar group which entertains club members on a Saturday night. The other members of the group, who call themselves the Quarrymen, travel from the south of the city to play. In our next episode, the boys continue to rock the Casbah, and Pete Best and Ringo Darkey's drum rivalry kicks off. 
while John persuades his good friend Stuart to pick up the bass. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Anthony Newley, Personality, Gene Vincent, Wedding Bells, Paul McCartney, I'll Follow the Sun, The Clash, Rock the Casbah, and The Beatles, Three Cool Cats from Anthology Volume 1. You can find full versions of the music exerted in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel for which I'll add a link to the show notes. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4J's group, LLC.